words of the song, you say, I am strong, when I say I am weak, focusing our attention on what God thinks about us rather than how we feel at times about ourselves. Isn't that the essence of the gospel? Jesus says, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else, Isaiah 45, verse 22. Let's pray. Father, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit, and here it's Friday night. We're entering the Sabbath, a memorial of creation, where the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, created the world. And Sabbath is a symbol of creation and recreation. So come, lead us close to you. Recreate our hearts in your image. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My topic is the urgency of revival. Some time ago, I read a fascinating story. A lady called up her insurance agent, and she said, I'd like to increase the insurance on my home. She was rather troubled and quite nervous, and he could tell that, and he said, no problem. I'll come over on Monday morning. It was late in the week. And he said, I'll make an appointment with you and we can work on that. We'll increase your premiums. We'll increase your uh, policy. She said, no, sir. I want to do it now. He said, well, well madam, I, I can't do it over the phone. I need to come to make an assessment. I need to give you the application. You need to pay the premium. Sir, I have to do it now. And the insurance agent got more frustrated and more frustrated, but she was very insistent. He said, may I ask you why? She said, sure you may. Look, mister, my house is on fire. I have to increase my coverage right now. There are some things you just can't wait to do. There are some things that are urgent things. It was Luther Warren, the early Adventist preacher, who said, the only way to get ready for the coming of Christ is to get ready today and stay ready. There's an urgency, and I think one of the devil's great deceptions for us is that there is no urgency, that uh, we can live kind of humdrum, complacent lives and uh, really uh, not worry too much about urgently preparing for the coming of our Lord. In Scripture, in Matthew chapter 24, we have the signs of the end. In Matthew chapter 25, we have how to prepare for Christ's coming. Matthew chapter 24 talks about over 20 different signs of the end, false Christs and false prophets, wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters. You've heard them preached from Adventist pulpits in an Adventist evangelistic meetings on numerous occasions. Jesus comes to the end of Matthew chapter 24 in verse 42, he says, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. In other words, watch means be alert, be ready, be prepared. Then it says, therefore also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't think that you don't expect it. So the second coming of Christ is unexpected. He comes quickly, rapidly, at a time that we ourselves are even surprised. Even Adventists who have preached the second coming of Christ and have looked for Jesus coming for many years will be surprised with the rapidity 
of events. Ellen White writes that we who know the truth should be preparing for what's going to come upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. So Matthew chapter 24 deals with the signs of Christ's coming. Matthew chapter 25 deals with preparation for Christ's coming. And there are three parables in Matthew chapter 25. The parable of the ten virgins talks about spiritual preparation. The parable of the ten talents talks about utilizing our talents to reach others for the kingdom of God. It talks about the fact that we have multiple gifts, that everybody doesn't have the same gift, but all those talents are focused on one thing. And then the last parable of the sheep and the goats talks about compassion upon the poor, compassion about those who are underprivileged. So you have in Matthew 25, you have the spiritual preparation for Christ's coming, the utilization of your gifts and mission, and compassion. We want to focus tonight on that first parable, the parable of the ten virgins. We find it here in Matthew, the 25th chapter. So if you have your Bible, whether it is on iPhone, whether it is on iPad, whether it is in the iBrain, or whether it is in the ancient scrolls, Matthew, the 25th chapter, and there we look at the just very first few verses to introduce our topic tonight, Matthew chapter 25, starting with verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins which took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took, no oil with, took their lamps and no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. This parable is a very significant parable. In fact, in the book of Matthew, which is a book of parables, there are 21 parables listed in the Gospel of Matthew. 14 of those parables refer to the kingdom of God. They're kingdom of God parables. And the kingdom of God parables often refer and always refer to the church. So when you read a parable that says, in the kingdom of God, you know that that parable is talking about the church. So it gives you insights about what God is talking about. Now, in this parable of the ten virgins, Ellen White writes in the Review and Herald, August 18, 1890, I'm often referred to the parable of the ten virgins, five of whom were wise and five were foolish. The parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter. So, inspired by God, Ellen White writes that she's often referred to this parable, that it's extremely significant, that it will be fulfilled. Now, Matthew 25, 1 says, in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is like ten virgins. So God uses the symbol of, of a woman, which represents, of course, in the Bible, the church. We see that in Revelation 12. Pure woman represents the true church. Revelation 17, the harlot represents the false church. We see this also in Ephesians chapter 5, where the church is the bride of Christ. So a woman always represents the church. A virgin, the pure, true church. So here is a specific parable that's addressed to the true church. Now, why ten? Uh, seven is perfection in the Bible. Three is the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the Godhead. 
uh, 12 has to do with completeness. Why 10? Why doesn't God use 7? Why doesn't he use 12? 10 is the smallest number of Jewish men that could, could comprise a synagogue. So that's another evidence that this is speaking about the church. So this is a parable for the church. It's a parable for God's end time church. It's a parable that describes the condition of end time, God's end time church. And it's a parable that teaches us how to be wise, part of that wise group and not part of the foolish group of virgins. So if indeed this is a parable about God's church, it's really important that we understand it, that we study it in some depth, that we don't have simply a, a superficial view of it. Now it says that these bridesmaids went out and each had a lamp. A lamp is the word of God. You recall that Psalm 119 verse 105 says, thy word, let's read it together. What is reading starting with thy word? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So what have we discovered so far? We've discovered that there are 10 virgins, virgins representing the true church. We've discovered that they're all anticipating the coming of the bridegroom, so they must be Adventists. We've also understood that it's part of the pure church. They're virgins. They're not harlots after the world someplace, so they're part of the true church. They have the word of God in their hand. So they are Bible-believing. They believe in the Advent because they're anticipating the coming of the bridegroom. They're Sabbath-keeping, tithe-paying Adventists. So all 10 are part of the, of the Adventist community, Adventist faith. But yet, the Bible says in Matthew 25, verse 2, now five of them were wise and five were foolish. So that leads us to a question. What makes the wise wise and the foolish foolish? How can I be part of the wise virgins? Why are the wise wise? Why are the foolish foolish? Now, the Bible says in Matthew 25, 8, but while the bridegroom delayed, they all slumbered and slept. You have three significant words in that passage. The delay of the bridegroom. The more time goes on that Christ does not come, the greater danger it is that wise virgins become foolish virgins. The Seventh-day Adventist church has been preaching the second coming of Christ for well over 160 years, well over that. And the, every generation says, Christ is coming. We're living on the edge of eternity. But yet every generation that Christ does not come reduces the amount in the heart of urgency. It increases the possibility of slumbering and sleeping. Now, what's the difference between slumbering and sleeping? Well, if you're sitting in this meeting and nodding off a little bit, and your wife is at you, that's slumbering. If you begin snoring in the meeting, that's sleeping. So you slumber before you sleep. You kind of enter into this state of spiritual inertia. You enter into this state of, state of spiritual drowsiness. You come to church, you sing the songs, but it doesn't move you any longer. You listen to the sermons, and it doesn't touch you in the, in the inner core of your being. You're slumbering. And then sleeping comes to the point 
where you just come and go and you, and you fiddle around on your iPhone and you daydream during the sermon and prayer meeting certainly is, it has three people if it's lucky. And uh, so that there's this idea of, of slumbering and, and, and sleeping that comes. We slumber before we sleep and we slumber and soon we will sleep. But yet God has a different plan for his church. God's people are to be a people with a message, a people with a mission, a people raised up to powerfully share the light of his word in a world of darkness. God says to a slumbering, sleeping church, Isaiah 60, verse 1 to 4, Arise, shine, for your light is come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Darkness shall cover the earth. Does darkness cover the earth today? Deep darkness, the people. But the Lord will rise over you. His glory will be seen on you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. I believe that we are on the verge of seeing something amazing. A Dodge Church is going to arise, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out, that Jesus' glory will be seen in us. The Gentiles, the unconverted, the secular humanist, the skeptic, the critic, will come to the light of the glory of God because in a world of selfishness, when you see a revelation of love, it touches your heart, changes your life. Kings will come to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes, God says to his church all around and see. They will gather together. They will come to you. God is going to move with a mighty spiritual revival. But how can each of these virgins have lamps that are filled with the oil. How can we be empowered by the Holy Spirit, filled with the oil of God's grace? God's people will illuminate the world with his glory. They'll impact the world with truth. But why? Why is it that these foolish virgins lack the oil? Why is that? Notice it says, those who were foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. So they had some oil in their lamps. Their lamps flickered, but they didn't take the extra supply of oil with them. And therefore, their lamps went out. Now let's look at this passage quite carefully, verse by verse. The bridegroom delays. When there's a delay of the bridegroom, there's the danger of slumbering and sleeping at midnight. The darkest time in earth's history. At midnight, when crime rages in our city streets. At midnight, when there are shootings in our schools. At midnight, when sexual immorality is rampant in our society. At, at midnight, where there is famine and disease and disaster all about. At midnight, where moral principles have been thrown to the dust. At midnight, the darkest hour, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And all those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. The wise answered, saying, No, lest there not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Two things we notice here. The wise and foolish virgins are together up until the second coming of Christ. But yet, the wise long for something they do not have, but they cannot get it. Rather, the foolish 
The foolish long for something they do not have, but they cannot get it from the wise. So whatever this oil has, is, a husband cannot get it from his wife, a wife cannot get it from her husband, and children can't get it from their parents. Whatever this oil is, it is something that one must buy. But I thought salvation was free. How do you buy the oil? What is the currency of heaven with which you buy the oil? How do you do that? And when they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those that were ready, so evidently, the bridegroom comes quickly and rapidly. There are those that are ready and those that are not. Though, so you cannot get ready when the decree goes forth, behold, the bridegroom comes. Those that were ready went into the marriage with him and the door was shut. So there comes a point when human probation closes and the door is shut and those that are ready go in and those that are not ready are left out. Now, notice what God says. And afterward, the other virgins came saying to us, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. A key verse. I do not know you. The wise virgins knew the master. They had an intimate relationship with Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, he lived in their hearts. The foolish virgins had a profession of faith, but they did not know Christ personally. And a personal experience with Jesus is not one that anybody can give to somebody else. So that's why Jesus says, watch, therefore, be alert, know, because you know neither the day nor the hour the Son of Man is coming. Now, the foolish virgins lacked the all-essential oil. If I asked the average Adventist audience, what is the oil, what's their response? The Holy Spirit, sure. That's the typical response, and that's right, but it leads me to another question. Why is it that God doesn't use the expression of wind? Why doesn't he tell a story that there are people that are oxygen starved and they need the breath of the spirit? Because isn't wind also a symbol of the spirit? Isn't that what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the wind blows where it lists? Now, didn't Jesus use water as a symbol of the spirit? Remember, we talked about the early and latter rain. Why precisely, why specifically does Jesus use the expression of oil? If you trace oil through the Bible, what do you find about oil? Let's do that. Let's look at exactly why the symbol of oil is used here in this end time parable that applies specifically to Seventh-day Adventists and the church on the kingdom on the verge of the kingdom. Let's, let's look at that and see why. Well, one of the first things we notice about oil, and we ask the question, why does Jesus use the symbolism of oil? You remember back in the Old Testament when a king was anointed. Remember when the prophet came to anoint David? He anointed him with oil. He was set aside as a king, set aside as royalty as the oil was poured over his head. So oil symbolized total, complete consecration. Do you remember when the sanctuary was 
inaugurated. The sanctuary and all its articles, as well as the priests, were consecrated with oil. In fact, when the priest was consecrated with oil, oil was placed on their head, placed on their ears, placed on their hands, placed on their feet. So oil is this symbol of the Holy Spirit setting apart a person in consecration as a royal king or as a priest. So we are kings and priests of God according to Revelation chapter 1. And the Holy Spirit sets us aside. You may not have known it, but there is royal blood running through your veins. You, you, you are a king of God. You are, part, you are a prince, a princess of God. We are set aside for God. We are priests of God to represent his love, his grace, ambassadors for the kingdom. So oil in this setting represents consecration. It represents a heart that is undivided. It represents a life that is totally consecrated with God. It represents a life that says nothing between my soul and my savior, not of this world's delusive dream. All I want to do, John 8, verse 28, as Jesus said, I do those things that please him. Hebrews 10, verse 7, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. So the oil of the Spirit sets aside the wise virgins, and they are totally, absolutely consecrated to God. There's nothing between them. The second notice of oil is the oil represents healing. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan, where the man was broken, bruised, lying by the wayside, the peddler, the traveler, and the Good Samaritan came down, and, and what did he anoint his wounds with? What did he do? Put in wine, which is an antiseptic to kill, dessert, kill germs. It's all right to use it to kill germs as long as you don't use it to kill your stomach. And, and, but anyway, so uh, there, he used oil. Why oil? Oil was a healing balm. Oil would heal the wound. Oil has to do all through the Bible with healing. We are broken by sin. Some of us have brokenness because of our early childhood. We've grown up in dysfunctional families, and there is, there's a brokenness, there's a hurt, there's a pain. Some of us grew up in families that went through the trauma of a divorce when we were 10 or 11, and there's brokenness. Some of us are broken because of mistakes that we've made in the past, conscious decisions that we've made that we know in our hearts are not right, and there's a certain brokenness in our lives. Some of us are broken not because of what we did do, but because we what we didn't do. We, we failed in certain ways to do things we know we ought to have done. And there's a brokenness. And what God is saying about the oil is this. Whatever your brokenness is, the Holy Spirit can heal the hurts of your heart. Whatever the brokenness is of your life, whether it's the childhood of your past, whether it's the trauma in your home, whether it's mistakes you've made, and so the wise virgins have entered into an experience with the living Christ where through the Holy Spirit they are set aside and consecrated to God. The world has lost its attraction to them and the healing grace of Christ through the Holy Spirit has flowed into their life and they are being restored into the image of God. So the, the first symbolism of oil is consecration. The second symbol of oil is restoration that God is doing a work in us to restore us to his image, 
to restore the brokenness that sin has had and that we long for that restoration. We say, God, like the Good Samaritan, applied the healing balm of oil on the broken, bruised, weary traveler. Lord, I'm a broken traveler. I'm a bruised traveler on the road of life. Lord, apply the oil of your spirit in my life and produce healing deep within my soul. The third aspect of this is oil is a symbol of illumination. So it's three symbols of oil. Consecration, it is a symbol of restoration, and it's a symbol of illumination. You remember Zechariah chapter 4. The olive trees have the oil that come to the lamps, and the sanctuary is lit. The lit sanctuary represents the light of life that this world is lit with the grace of God. And in that same chapter of Zechariah 4, we read, not by might nor by spirit, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So what does God want to do in our lives? On our knees, we say, Jesus, fill me with the oil of your spirit. Jesus, I want to be consecrated to you. I want my ears to be consecrated so I only hear what you would be pleased with. I want my eyes to be consecrated so I only see what you would be pleased with. I don't want my feet to take, you place, take me places that you would be pleased with. I don't want to put into my mouth and my stomach things that, that would only please you. Lord, I long to be totally consecrated to you. Let your spirit do your work in my life. Lord, help me be a wise virgin. And Lord, heal my heart. Restore me into your image through the Holy Spirit, not through gritting my teeth and bearing it, not through trying harder, but opening my heart to the divine power of God. And Lord, help me be a light in this dark, dark world. See, God longs to have a people filled with his spirit, totally, absolutely consecrated to him. You see, the foolish virgins may have had some oil in the past, and they did, but they depended on a past experience rather than a living reality. And the truth of the matter is, what God did for you a year ago, three years ago, or five years ago, cannot make up for what he wants to do in your life today. Christianity is always new. As, as it says in Lamentations 3, verse 23, his mercies are new every morning. As the manna fell and it had to be collected every day, so every day the bread of life is broken by the living Christ to us. And every day we are coming to Jesus, consecrating our lives to him that day, letting his grace heal our hearts that day, asking him to make us powerful witnesses that day. Now notice, the decree went forth. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. As it is, they say, our lamps are going out. In other words, we've become common and ordinary in our Christian experience. In other words, we've lost that loving, that, that vibrant experience with Jesus. In other words, our experience with Christ has become formal. The, the faith we once had, it's flickering, it's dying. The love for Christ we once had is flickering, it's flickering, it's dying. The prayer life we once had is dull, it's insipid. The Bible study life we once had is now boring to us. Lord, our, our lamps are going out. Ellen White, Gospel Workers, 274. Read it together with me, please. We need an experience much higher 
deeper, broader than many have yet thought of having. God is calling this generation to a, a deep commitment to him, to a consecration to him, to allowing his spirit to heal their hearts, to allow his spirit to empower them to be witnesses to the world. Does your heart still burn within you as you open God's word? Do you still sense his presence when you get on your knees to pray? Do you still love to take those long walks alone and pour out your soul to him? Do you still love those intimate, special moments that you can spend with Jesus? Notice what Ellen White says about the foolish virgins. The class represented by the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They have a regard for the truth. So they're not apostates. They're not out here trying to uh, destroy truth. The problem isn't a doctrinal problem here. We've got enough doctrinal problems, but that's not the problem with the, with the foolish virgins. They have advocated the truth. They are attracted to those that believe the truth. Now, those are three pretty powerful things. They have a regard for the truth. They've advocated the truth. They've attracted to those who believe the truth. But they have not yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit's working. They have not fallen upon the rock, Christ Jesus, and permitted their old nature to be broken up. The Spirit works upon man's heart according to his desire and consent in implanting in him a new nature. But the class represented by the foolish virgins have been content with a superficial work. They do not know God. They've not studied his character. They've not held communion with him. Therefore, they do not know how to trust, how to look and live. Their service to God degenerates into a form. I was sharing a message not far from Chattanooga in one of our churches there a number of years ago on the parable of the ten virgins. At the end of the meeting, a young woman came up to me, 18 years old or so, said, Pastor Mark, can we talk? I said, sure. She said, I'm a nursing student at Southern Adventist University. Before I came to the university, I had a vibrant experience with Jesus. I've just had one semester of nursing. I'm taking 18 hours a semester, and I'm so wiped out and so tired that I haven't had much of a devotional life. I've lost what I've had. It was no problem with the universities. It was her own choice, obviously. But she said, Pastor Mark, you talked about the parable of the ten virgins. I believe in this message. I love to be around other Christians, but I don't have it. There's something missing in my life. My experience with God, Pastor, has become superficial. Can you help me? So we sat down and I said, look, I'm going to share with you six chapters in the Bible on the death of Christ. And I want you to get out a pen, I said to this young lady, and write them down. First, and then I'm going to tell you what to do with them. Psalm 22, write it down. She wrote it down. Isaiah 53, write it down. Matthew 26 and 7, I put them together. Mark 13, Luke 23, and John 19, so, and 20. So she wrote them down. And then I said, this is what I want you to do. I'm not asking you to spend an hour, two hours a day. Just every single day. It's not speed reading. These are six chapters on the death of Christ. Every day for the next six months, 
Spend time meditating on what Christ has done for you. And the Holy Spirit will revive you through his word. She called me about a month later and said, Pastor Mark, I've been reading Psalm 22, reading Isaiah 53. And she said, it's, it's amazing what God is doing in my life. I lost touch with that girl. And about nine months later, I was at Southern New England Conference preaching at camp meeting. And a young woman walked up the aisle and said, do you, rem do you know who I am? And I said, I, I don't really. And she said, Pastor Mark, you helped my sister at Southern Adventist University about nine months ago. She said, have you heard what happened to my sister? I said, no, I, I have no idea. She said, well, my sister came home to Connecticut where she lived from Southern Adventist University and she was Christmas shopping at Thanksgiving time with my father. And as she was shopping, she had always had a heart murmur from the time she was a child. And when she was shopping, with no warning, she had a massive heart attack and died in my father's arms. But pastor, thank you for what happened in my sister's life. Because when we went to her room to get her things, we found her Bible by her bed. And in that Bible, she had written those six chapters. And she wrote these words, I once was a foolish virgin, but now, I'm a wise virgin. God moved in that meeting, in that woman's life. And the Holy Spirit came down and she saw that she had a superficial Christian experience. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 5 says in the last days, in what days everybody? The last days. Perilous times, dangerous times will come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a what? Form of godliness but denying the power thereof. That's the problem of the foolish virgins. They have a form of godliness, but they, they don't have the living power of Christ in their life. Their lamps go out. There's a difference be, have, between having the word of God in your hand to defend the truth and having the word of God in your heart to live the truth. Has the truth which you believe in the Christ that you proclaim to others radically transformed your own life. In the parable of the ten virgins, Ellen White says, five of them are described as wise and five as foolish. The foolish took no oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now notice, they did not obtain the grace of Christ. They were just like the wise virgins as far as theory and appearance were concerned. So the foolish virgins looked just like the wise virgins as far as theory and as far as appearances are concerned. They had the lamps, but they had no oil. They made a profession, but they did not know what genuine conversion meant. In other words, they have the appearance, they have the theory, but the living Christ manifest in the Holy Spirit had not broken their hearts. Now notice, genuine faith works by love and purifies the soul. There is a faith that has power to cleanse the life from sin. Now look at what the, de look at this is about the devils Ellen White is writing. The devils believe that Christ came into this world as the world's redeemer. So the devils believe what? The devils believe Christ came into this world as the world's redeemer. That he wrought mighty miracles. That he was one with the Father. That he died a shameful death to save fallen man. The devils believe that he rose from the dead and that he ascended into the heavens and he sits at the right hand of God. 
The devils believe he's coming again. When I read this, I about fell off my chair. The devils believe all that stuff. Why? Because it's in what? The Bible, and they can see that. And that shortly, with power and great glory, he's going to take vengeance on them that know, know not God and obey not the gospel. They believe all that's recorded in the Old and New Testaments. But will this save the demons of darkness? They have not the faith that works by love and purifies the soul. That faith and that alone which cleanses the soul temple is genuine faith. So genuine faith reaches up, grasps the reality of Christ's life and death in our behalf. Genuine faith opens its heart to the grace of God. Genuine faith has an intimate relationship with Christ. And genuine faith allows the Holy Spirit to consecrate us totally and absolutely to Jesus. So our affections are taken from the things of earth. Genuine faith asks God to restore within us the image of Christ and to restore us from the brokenness. Genuine faith asks God to use us as witnesses in this generation. The foolish virgins hope to make up for their lack by the, their association with the wise virgins, but they could not do that. The foolish virgin said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. But character is not transferable. Character is not transferable. The wise virgins have an intimate relationship with God that translates into the transformation of character. The foolish virgins have only theory. It's never gotten from their head to their heart and transformed their life. The oil represents the sanctifying grace of Christ through the Holy Spirit that transforms the character and enables us to be lights of the world to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. There is an abundant supply of heaven's oil for every one of us. Isn't that good news? The incredible good news is that there is an infinite, abundant, everlasting supply of heaven's power through the Holy Spirit for you and for me. God longs to fill us with his grace. He longs to fill us with his love. He longs to fill us with his spirit. But the, you know what the greatest danger is? Delay. The greatest danger is putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. The foolish virgins were waiting for the coming of the bridegroom when they should have been preparing for the coming of the bridegroom. They were waiting for the coming of the bridegroom rather than preparing. The story is told of the devil who gathers together all of his evil angels. It's, it's, it's a fictitious story, but it could very well be true. So the devil gathers all his evil angels and he says, what's the best method, best method to deceive humanity? The best method to get the largest number of people lost? Well, one angel says, I'll go and tell them there is no God. And the devil says to that angel, tell them there is no God. They see the evidence of creation in the sun, moon, and stars. They see the evidence of creation in every blossoming flower, in every fruit tree that bears fruit. All nature sings of creation and God. That's not going to work. We've tried that before. Another angel says, I'll tell them there is no truth. The devil says, wait a minute, there's truth in mathematics, truth in science, truth in chemistry, truth in physics. That's not going to work. Another angel comes and says, I'll tell them there's no hurry. And the devil says, go. Tell them to go about their work. Tell them to profess Christianity 
but not have the living power of God in their lives. Tell them there's no urgency to have an intimate relationship with God. God longs to pour out his spirit upon his church. He longs to touch you and me with his grace. He longs for us to be on our knees, asking him to fill us with his oil. You know, I could end the meeting right here and say, let's all go home, we'll have closing prayer, and we uh, have been blessed, and people say, Pastor, it's a good sermon, thank you very much. But I wonder if God wants to do something more tonight. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something special. What has God impressed you with in this meeting tonight? Has he impressed you with a change? Is there some thought that he's impressed you with? In one sentence, how many sentences, everybody? Are we going to talk about what God did five years ago and give a speech for 10 minutes? I want to know, did God impress you with anything in the meeting tonight? One sentence. We don't need microphones. Just stand up and say, Pastor Mark, this is what God impressed me with. This is like the old-fashioned Adventist testimony meetings. One sentence, okay? Who'd like to be first? What did God impress you with? Anything in the message tonight that God impressed you with? Yes, Elder Louie. Amen. God impressed you to seek his face every morning. Yes, sister. That's very practical, my dear sister, not to replace the two TVs that were blown out by. I wonder if the Holy Spirit can blow those out sometimes. I am not suggesting that. Yes. Yeah, you know, that's a key point. It's not that we're waiting for the coming of Christ. It is what? We're preparing for the coming of Christ. What did God do in your heart? You know, as you testify, it'll strengthen your faith because impression without expression can lead to depression. But when we express something, it deepens that commitment in our own lives and it blesses other people. Yes, sister. I like that. The Holy Spirit is like a medicine that brings healing to our hearts. Who else wants to share something? Yes. Says that when God convicts her of something, she wants to surrender that thing and not wait till tomorrow to surrender that. Somebody else wants to share something. Yes. When Christ comes, it's too late. Today is the day of our salvation. Yeah, not just waiting, but actually preparing. Yes. The importance of a deeper prayer life. Mm-hmm. Yes. To give all of ourselves. And you want to do that, I know, don't you, sister? Yes. Mm-hmm. You need an experience, not just knowledge. Yes. 
Oh, I love that. I love that one. The brother says, I won't get there by listening to you, Pastor Mark. I'll get there by letting the Holy Spirit work in my heart. I agree with that. Three amens. Live for Jesus in a way that attracts others. We don't want to repel others, do we? Who else is something? Let's sing that little song. Who can help me? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Who's? Elder Louis. Spirit of the living God. I need help when it comes to singing. We're going to sing Spirit of the living God. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me and fill me, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Is there anybody else that you want to share something? You feel God's moving in your life, that the Holy Spirit is touching you. Maybe there's something that you want to surrender to Jesus. You don't need to say what that is, but maybe you just want to stand up and say, there's something in my life that I need to surrender, and I, want to, I just want to testify that God is leading me to do that. Maybe you found that your Bible study life and prayer life is, it got weaker, and you just want to say, Lord, I want to recommit my life to you tonight. Is there somebody else before I pray? Yes, brother, you may stand. You want to be diligent in seeking the Spirit, yes. Yeah, don't delay. That's one of the devil's great deceptions, isn't it? To, to, to say there's no urgency, because the truth of the matter is, I remember Elder HMS Richards one time was preaching on the second coming of Christ, the signs, and a man stood up in the audience and he said, Christ may not come for a hundred years. And the guy was about 70 years old, and Richard said to him, put your hand on your heart, thump, 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 thump. It's not going to be 70 years for you, because once that heart stops beating, and none of us have the assurance of tomorrow, that's why the Lord leads us. Yes. The time to seek God with all your heart is now. Amen. Amen. Yes. You want to be more and more like Jesus. Amen. Yes. The harvest is over. The summer has ended. We're not saved. And the beautiful thing about that is right now, the door of mercy is open. Right now, God's grace is available for every one of us. Right now, Jesus wants to save us more than we want to be saved. The wonderful, incredible good news is that Jesus wants us in heaven even more than we want to be there. And that whatever struggles we go through, whatever difficulties we go through, whatever challenges we face, the oil of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, bringing into our hearts the grace of Christ and the enlightenment of his word and the power of Christ is greater than all the powers of the devil.
Jesus defeated Satan on the cross at Calvary. We serve a victorious Jesus. I'm going to pray, but just before I do, I don't want to cut anybody off. If there's somebody thinking, hey, I want to get up and say, yes. Amen. You know, that's very practical, brother, and that's very specific. When you get up and say, I'm impressed that I want to rededicate my life and I want to get up early in the morning to know God, God is going to honor that. He's going to bless you for that. Anybody else before I pray? Amen. Yes, sister. You want to be a, yes, a child of God and a follower of his will. We're going to pray. Let's stand. Oh, I missed. Yes. Amen. Amen. If we can leave this place with a new sense that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, and we go back to our local churches with that sense of renewed commitment, God will be honored and it'll make a difference here in Carolina. Let's stand together. Father in heaven, Tonight, we sense in a special way that it's the Holy Spirit that wants to set us aside with the oil of consecration. We come, not looking at who we are, but looking at who you are. Not looking at our weakness, but looking at your strength. Not looking at the places we may have failed, but the Christ who is victorious in our behalf. We come to consecrate our lives to the living Christ. We come also asking you for the healing grace of God in our own lives. Heal us deep with inside from hurt, from pain, from brokenness. Send us from this place to be the lights of the world in a world of darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Have you been blessed? Praise God. Just a real quick announcement for our Carolina Conference pastoral staff. Those of you that are staying in the Holiday Inn Express, if you could please check out in the morning before coming over to camp and hope that you have a restful and blessed evening. God bless you and happy Sabbath.